Hello, everyone. This is Brian Sonnenstein, one of your hosts for the Beyond Prisons podcast. I'm here to introduce a wonderful two-part interview led by my co-host, Kim Wilson, with formerly incarcerated activist Kempis Ghani Songster. In 1987, at the age of 15, Kempis was imprisoned for homicide. Despite his age, he was certified as an adult, convicted of first-degree murder, and given a mandatory life sentence without parole, or what is increasingly known today as death by incarceration. Thus, he became one of America's many juvenile lifers and condemned children. While in prison, Kempis developed and facilitated programs to help people behind the walls with him, as well as programs to help people on the outside. He also co-founded outside organizations such as The Redemption Project and Ubuntu Philadelphia, and is a founding member of Right to Redemption, which helped launch Philadelphia's coalition to abolish death by incarceration. After 30 years of incarceration, he was released from prison at the age of 45. Since his release, he has joined the staff of the Amistad Law Project, a grassroots abolitionist law collective working for the release of others as they fight to end the sentencing of human beings to life without parole or death by incarceration and abolish the prison industrial complex. He has also joined the membership of Eco-Socialist Horizons. Like I said, this is a two-part conversation and we are looking forward to releasing the second segment next week. Until then, I hope you'll enjoy this thoughtful conversation that touches on everything from juvenile incarceration, to death by incarceration, to punishment after reentry, and more. If you like our show, please help fund our work. You can sign up and give a few dollars each month at patreon.com slash beyondprisons. Please also take a minute to rate, review, and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. And make sure you're following us on Twitter at beyond underscore prison and at facebook.com slash beyondprisons as well. All right, thanks again for listening, and here's part one of Kim's interview with Ghani. I ran away from home, from Brooklyn, New York, to Philadelphia at the age of 15. You know, chasing adventure, chasing some type of, um, you know, street credibility, trying to plunge myself into the most dangerous kind of situations to to try to make up for poor showings in, in you know, in, in situations that call for my courage a lot of times when I was young, like dealing with bullies and so on and so forth. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, you know, so, and that, and so that, that was one of the, in, in hindsight, reflecting on my life over the years and, and in the privacy of, of my own prison cell, you know, asking myself over and over again, why did I do what I did and how could I do something like that? And how did I end up here knowing I wasn't raised that way? You know, teasing out those things in my life, I, I did. I realized how how insecure I was. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? With especially with my parents being very unassuming, not in, unassuming, not intimidating. You know what I'm saying? And trying to convince myself, wanting to be tough. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Even in the moment when the tragic act, that explosive episode of violence took place that caused the life of, of another human being. You know what I'm saying? In that yeah. moment, you know, in hindsight, I knew I was probably the worst of the three person because I was the most insecure, mm-hmm. you know, but going into going into prison as a child, you know, I, I, I was I was confronted with a reality that like just disintegrated all my uh, 
all the lies I was trying to tell myself about myself. Mm-hmm. I knew that I had to, I, I knew I had to take care of myself in this space, but I, but I couldn't be under any illusions. <laughs> you dig what yeah. I'm saying about, yeah. you know what I mean? And so like, and so I had to, I had to change. It, it, it forced me to mature really, really quick. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and be it being humble and act, and, and 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 as a matter of fact, Kim, it forced me to draw on all the things that my mother and my grandmother and my family had instilled in me. Those things that I had rebelled against and ran away from home. Mm-hmm. I drew on I I drew on those things in the prison in the prison environment, and those were the things that helped me to survive good manners, being respectable, you know what I'm saying? Things that I was trying to run away with, things that I wanted to be the opposite of in the streets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I became disrespectful. I became arrogant because I thought that was the way. Mm -hmm. You dig what I'm saying? Um, To deal with the the inadequacies in myself. But in prison, I started to actually be, be the person that my mother and my grandmother wanted me to be. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying, and that attracted, that attracted some good old heads to me. You know, old heads like um, Russell Maroon Schultz. Yeah. You know, a political prisoner, Russell Maroon Schultz, Joseph Jojo Bond, and other old heads that saw something in me that they wanted to invest in. You know, and so they gave me books to read, and you know, plus you know, and that and and that's building on the first book that I read, which my own mother brought to me. You know, on her first visit, that was the autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm. You know, she bought, matter of fact, it was three books that she bought, the autobiography of Malcolm X, the autobiography of Nelson Mandela, and Mark Mathabani's Kaffir Boy. Right. Mm. Mm-hmm. And and it was, and it, 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 so it's in, in combination with reading those things and then drawing on the things that my family taught me and, and, try, and, and, and starting to behave differently. Mm-hmm. That that attracted some positive old heads to me, and they saw that I had potential because I was smart. Yeah, and uh, I don't know. It just um, it ended up with me becoming politicized, more you know, finding and regaining my humanity and moral rectitude, maturing, and be just be you know, be learning how to make social more socially responsible decisions. Yeah. You know, f- feeling a sense of responsibility to things bigger than myself, realizing that there are real struggles in the world, bigger struggles, you know what I'm saying, that real people are going through. And, and here I am, acting fool, actually contributing to the problem instead of contributing to solution to the solution. You know, so these, and I, I was confronted with these things and confronted with myself, my own self-accusing spirit. Yeah, you know, and 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 the privacy of my own cell. You know, I, I began well, to um, to realign myself. Yeah. Um. So I want to jump in here because uh, you've said a lot. Um, yeah. And you know, I kind of want to go back a little bit because the thing that I keep um thinking about as you're as you're talking is, you know, but you were only fifteen. You were yeah. only fifteen, right? And aren't we asking? Yeah too much of individual young people caught up in circumstances that are much larger than themselves to kind of, you know, dig deep and 
overcome the sort of systemic violence and the societal messages that they're getting, um, particularly around, you know, toxic masculinity and the things that you're describing that, you know, ask a young black man to be, you know, um, to overcompensate, right? And to be tough, um, even if you don't want to be, right? So it's like the script that society has, you know, written by and large for young black men is very narrow in terms of what it will permit, right? So you can't be, you can't be perceived as vulnerable or soft or, you know, even tender. Um, So I wonder if you have some thoughts around that, given that, you know, you, you spoke to all of those things. Yeah, I mean, I, I I do. I I have a lot of thoughts about it. I've, you know, I've I've dove into history. I'm you know becoming a student of history. Dove into politics. You know, I've studied the socioeconomical, you know, predicament of our people. Mm-hmm. You know, especially and and one one particular, you know, um, issue that our people have dealt with. You know, was in my era, the era that I got locked up in 1987. Yeah. The advent of the of the crack era. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've I've you know I've I've tried to unpack that as much as I could because I I think if anybody that's really interested in what's going on with our youth, what's going on with our culture in the inner cities, if we don't try to analyze and understand the impact of the crack era on the culture of our inner cities will forever be at a loss and we'll be forever blaming the pawns in the game, which is the youth, while the real criminals who have already gotten away scot-free, mm-hmm. you dig what I'm saying, will never be brought to, I'm talking about the likes of everybody that was involved in that um, Iran-Contra affair, everybody mm-hmm. that was involved in Guns for Drugs. You know, I, I, I read Gary Webb's Dark Alliance I read Robert Perry's Lost History. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I, I know how, to, I, 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 and, and I know that, that the crack cocaine era, you know, when that hit our inner cities, you know, it, it hit like a nuclear bomb that lasted for almost like two decades. And it affected you whether you did the drug or not. Yeah. You know, it changed everything. You know what I'm saying? For me personally, when I started seeing young kids my age, you know, shine in my neighborhoods, sh- shining with mysterious accomplishments, I'm talking about gold rings and chains and, and driving little BMWs and Benzes. You understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. And here I am. I'm being raised by a single mother, and, and I'm going to school or junior high school for the gifted and talented working my behind off, trying to, you know, being told that if I get an education, I can get the American dream. And the American dream was nothing but um, material things, basically a car, a house, crack cocaine, you know, was was presenting um, young, unfortunate like, like me in the inner city with a, with a promise or a temptation of an express lane to the American dream. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so education to me, started to seem like a long, tedious, light-consuming, 
you know, fruitless, you know, course to the American dream. It didn't make sense to me anymore. You know mm. what I'm saying? It's like it didn't make sense to a lot of youth. You know what I mean? And so the school to prison pipeline, again, let me just say, and I, and I don't mean to sound discursive, but this thing is so complex. You Absolutely. know, like the school, the, the school to prison pipeline, it ain't just it ain't just start with the with the introduction of metal detectives and police and oh, stuff God. in our schools. No, you know, no. you know, the school to prison pipeline, you know, was going on. I mean, at Mal- Malcolm X, it was in Malcolm X time when the teacher told him that he couldn't be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and you see how he ended up and, and it continued on in my era, you know, mm-hmm. where, you know, for me, edu- where we are basically told that education is just about learning what you can learn so you could get some money, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, and that's how we, 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 that's the math that we did in our head as young people coming up in the inner cities, you know, and then you combine that with the self-hatred and hate learning how to hate everything that looked like us. Mm-hmm. You dig what I'm saying? Yep. That's a toxic brew. And in the socially toxic environment that we're growing up in, that's a toxic brew. But see, Kim, I can't, that's just for my own understanding. The minute I start talking about that from my position, see, you can say that. But the minute I start saying that, then it sounds as if I'm making an excuse for what I did. No, I hear even you. Though I, I hear you, know, you. So even though I, you know what I'm saying though, Kim? So like, yeah. no, so I, let's, I, let's have a real, let's have a real conversation here. Absolutely. Even though I'm a 46 year old man now, when I left prison nine months ago, December 28th, after 30 years of incarceration, mm-hmm. that began when I was 15. Looking back in hindsight, I knew I, I, yeah, I, was, I was an adolescent. You know what I'm saying? And I know that in terms of agency, I didn't really find the locus of my agency at 15 years old. And that's not to say that children can't do cruel things. Children can kill people and children do. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. what, 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 what the U.S. Supreme Court was saying, what the neuroscientists are saying and all the social scientists and activists are saying and the, and the legal teams and the lawyers and the people of goodwill in society is saying is that for children is different than adults in the level of their responsibility. Not saying that children shouldn't be disciplined, but that the level of punishment should not be the same. So that to sentence children to mandatory life without parole, to condemn them to death by incarceration, especially when the science says that one, children are less responsible than adults because their brains are not fully developed, particularly particularly the, the prefrontal lobe, the, yeah. the, that, the part that controls the executive functions of your brain, your impulses, Absolutely. your emotions and stuff is not fully. And then the second thing is that it's hard for children to extricate themselves yeah. from criminogenic situations and peer pressure. And third, because their characters are not fully formed, it's more likely that the fallibilities that led to their actions the, the, yeah. the harmful actions or what can can subside with proper intervention and so on and so forth, right? That is more that is that's more like those those things make children less deserving of the same type of punishment than an adult whose character is fully yeah. formed yeah. to receive. That's that's yeah. the issue. 
Well, that's, I mean, I, I think that's one of the issues. I think, um, you know, I've been talking a lot about punishment, but I, I want to um, yeah. go back because I think that, you know, the point that you made about there are things that you can say and then, you know, there are things that I can say. Um, yeah. One that I'd, I'd like to explore a little bit further um, because I think that, you know, this, this is part of, one one of the many things that frustrates me about um about how we tend to have these conversations is that you know for someone and I have two sons that are in prison um both of them sentenced to LWAP um so oh my goodness yeah um so you know I I'm coming at this and you know with a with an understanding of this from the perspective of a mother, um, as well as yeah. an academic and, and activist. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. But one of the things that frustrates me about the conversation is that if they wanted to talk about it, or if you wanted to talk about this in the way that I just mentioned, that, you know, um, this isn't uh that this isn't just about an individual behavior right. that this is it's not about at a, societal, right. at a societal level at a systemic level that there is a problem right and right. Right. If, if our conversations are going to be um limited to you know well there's only things that you know folks academic folks can talk about and then there's the stuff that you know formerly incarcerated um people with, you know, this uh, history are permitted to talk about. I want to push back against that because I'm like, and not against you saying that, but just against that idea in right. general. Um, right. Because, you know, again, as an abolitionist, I feel like it's um, it's one of those systems that we also need to destroy, right? Is how so, we- and, and you're right. And you're right. Let me just can let me just jump in though, Kim. Right, and yeah. it's not just for real. And because you're spot on, everything you're saying is spot on. And I'm not suggesting that um, you know this is something that only people in the academia, mm-hmm. you know, need to. I'm talking about just people that are who don't have blood on their hands, like I yeah. do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm gonna be. And here's the thing, you know. And I'm so. I'm and, and I'm I got to be forthright because it's my life and my lessons, the lessons that I've learned not from from what I've done and from my journey. If all of that is to be of any use value yeah. to society, to society, then that the degree of use value and all of that can only be determined by the degree of my forthrightness and my vulnerability about the situation. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, I'm saying like, not that I can't speak about it. When I got, when I speak first, I got to I got to say from the door, look, I'm, I, I, I know what I did. Mm-hmm. You understand? And I understand, I understand now too, Kim, that, you know, it's not that children don't know right from wrong. You know, you could tell your child, look, don't do something. It's not wrong. It's wrong to lie. It's wrong to steal. It's wrong to kill somebody. And and so you know, it's in your child's head. But it's the child. What's what's missing is the children's capacity 
mm-hmm. to stop themselves from doing wrong all the time. Mm-hmm. Children don't have the braking me- mechanisms fully operational to put the brakes on themselves in certain situations, especially when they're sur- pressured by peers and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm saying like Aristotle, Aristotle wrote about this 2,500 years ago in his treatise on rhetoric when he talked about, and I'm quoting from, from memory here, when he said that in terms of their character, the young are prone to desires and inclined to do whatever they desire, and they are impulsive and quick-tempered and inclined to follow up their anger by action, and they are unable to resist their impulses, unable to resist their impulses. Mm-hmm. For through love of honor, they cannot put up with being belittled, you know, and so it goes on and on. And I can say the whole quote, but, you know, but, but my point is, so when I talk to young people now, this is when this is so, so I, I, I talk to young dudes coming through, say, look, man, you know, I understand I've been there. One thing you can't tell me, like you could tell people in the academy or, you know, you can't or whoever else. You call a counselor or a psychologist that they don't know what you're going through. You can't tell me that crap. Mm-hmm. I know what you're going through. You know what I'm saying? I know what it's like to be insecure. I know what it's like to, to be scaling a tower of inadequacy inside yourself. I know what it's like to feel as though you got to prove yourself, prove you ain't a chump. And I know what it's like to do some dumb stuff and to think some evil stuff and then yeah. carry it out and be filled with regret. I know what it's like. So don't hand me that. But what I'm saying is, you got to tap into your own agency and you got to resist. You got to resist those urges and those things that's been planted in your, 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 your head by a dominant, perverted social culture and socially toxic environments. You know what I'm saying? You got to resist this toxic masculinity stuff. And that's how, you know, I, I talk to them out of love, though. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And so, but like when we in certain circles, you know, knowing how this society is, Kim, you know, I can't go into, you know, how, okay, I was racially railroaded in the courtroom or how, you know, my mother, oh, no, I get it. mother yeah. you know no, what I'm I saying? I can't because, because immediately, immediately people start checking out, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Well, they no, start they, checking they, out. They assume that, they, they assume that the telling of facts is you know, you basically trying to absolve yourself of resol- uh, responsibility. Um, and, and that's <laughs> and not what I'm doing, Kim. That's yeah. not what I'm doing. And what we're doing is, because this yeah. is what we're talking about. At what point, Kim, is our society going to take collective introspection? Yeah. Right. It's easy. It's easy to heap blames on individuals. But what is wrong with our children? When are we going to look at the culture we're producing that's creating violent tendencies in young people. All our children ain't bad and they're not evil. And so when are we going to question ourselves as a a society? Because ultimately this is what we're talking about. What kind of society we want to create and leave behind for the next generation, a society that's conducive to children making better choices or a society that exacerbates and exploits their vulnerabilities and then condemns them to prison to die uh, for those vulnerabilities. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the other thing that, you know, I was thinking of as you were talking is how little space we give people for, you know, that have harmed for remorse and how little 
we care to actually believe them, you know, when they express remorse, unless they continue to express that remorse indefinitely for the rest of their lives. Does that make sense? Makes a uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you're asking me. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I am. No, 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 Kim. No, refrain. Give me that question one more time so I can make sure I understand what you. Go ahead. Let me let me hear. It well, while I'm listening. Let me hear yeah, what you're saying. I mean, you know, uh, what I'm thinking of is, you know, as we're talking here, is how little space there actually is in whether we're talking about the criminal punishment system, whether we're talking about organizational spaces, society right. at large, or what have you, for people that have caused harm, right, right. Um, that have harmed for remorse, right? And even if we allow them this space to express remorse, we yeah. also attach an expectation that they will forever express remorse. So, so, so that is such an important question, right, Kim? And, and let me give it to you from a perspective that I don't think is normally put out there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Entering the prison system as a young child, or, you know, any one of us that's entering the prison system, right the first thing we hear the first thing we hear in the minute our rights is read to us right anything you say can and will be used against you in the court of law mm -hmm. so automatically kim we're dissuaded from coming clean if we wanted to right you know what i'm saying not saying people don't go ahead at, even after that to make confessions and self-incriminatory statements, but I'm just saying, we're told, it's like a warning, anything you say can and will be used against, and, and that word against yeah. versus a warning, and that word against lets you know this is an adversarial situation that you're in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You dig what I'm saying? This Absolutely. is an adversarial situation. And so now, and so now, compound that, Cam, compound that with the street codes, these yep. unwritten street codes and the toxic masculinity stuff that we're coming into the system with, you better not tell on yourself or admit to anything. Even if you did it, you better, you dig what I'm saying? Yep. And so, you, so you're working with that, you're working with the internal police, the street stuff, and then these, the, 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 the cops reading, telling you anything you say can or will be used against you. And then you're probably either you're, you're, you're being handcuffed behind your back, thrown in a car, or you're sitting chained like as a little kid in an interrogation room with cops running the psychological good cop bad cop thing on you and yep. so you know so so you like you being psychologically like scrambled in this moment yeah you know what i'm saying and so so from the door from the door you all any avenue any any if if there is an impulse in you to want to like just come clean and say what you did because you feel bad or regretful about what you did. Yeah. You're, dis you're discouraged by those factors that I just ran down. Well, yeah. I mean, and it's, me, like, and it's me, not a, a legally wise strategy to pursue to, right. you know, right. to admit uh, to these. Right. But I'm thinking, you know, even, yeah. 
even after, you know, a conviction, even after someone is sentenced, that there is no space in right in our society for no space that have harmed, you know, and caused, you know, serious harm um, for them to express like true remorse, like just, you right. know. Right. And, and, and I'm telling you, because the system, way the system is set up, it doesn't facilitate not just remorse, but and 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 remorse as it doesn't facilitate remorse as a key ingredient and first step to reconciliation. Yep. And to heal and to healing. Or to and heal. to bring in yeah. the and, and to bringing the community back together, possibly that have been torn to some degree by this act of violence and by this loss of a community member to a senseless act of violence. Right. Mm-hmm. The system ain't the system ain't, ain't it's not in the business of facilitating that kind of stuff. Yeah. You dig what I'm saying? And so as a child, you're coming through that. Huh? No, I said absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so and then when you go to see your lawyer. For the first time, your lawyer tell you, look, boom, your lawyer might know you guilty and tell you, no, I got this. You know what I'm saying? I got this. And you will sit there knowing that. You took someone's life and you will watch your lawyer put on the best performance for you in the court of law. Right. If you don't take a deal, you plead in your innocence. And then if you get convicted and you go upstate, now you confront it with this stuff. And then you start you might start reading a little bit. You might read the Bible. You might read the Quran and join religion. Right. Start politicizing yourself. Join some, you know, start reading books, join organizations, start to take programs. You might even start programs, whatever, whatever path, if you, if you take that positive path, right? But the, what you did, you might still be in the law, you might be, become a jailhouse lawyer, and you might even be appealing your, your case and fighting your case, still maintaining your in, innocence, even though you know you did it. And, I, and, and don't get me wrong, Kim, there are people in a lot of pe- people in prison who are actually innocent. Mm-hmm. They're actually innocent, but I'm talking about a lot of people are not, and we might maintain our innocence and bury who the, what we did over the layers of our reinvented selves. So we might become politically conscious and revolutionary in our thinking, politicize prisoners, and we want to change the system, and you know we become like politically, morally you know, righteous to, to, to use that word, but we're not, if we're not honest about, about the, the blood that's on our hands, the community members blood that, that's on our hands, there's an internal contradiction because with the things that we, 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 we're fighting against politically that we want to change in our communities, we haven't even recon, reconciled the role that we played in the very things that we're fighting against. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? In our own personal lives. And so, but because it's so consequential to come clean and you might want to come clean because you know it's wrong and the more politically conscious you become, the more religious, you know, spiritually conscious you become, you know, you, it, it, the, the, the gravity of what you did weighs heavier. But it's just so consequential and the system is so adversarial that 
it's it's like an internal conflict and it creates like a split personality almost. You know what I'm saying? I'm telling you, you know, you know what I, what I've seen, you know, from behind the walls and so which is why the juvenile ruling has almost been like a grace for a lot of people that always wanted to come clean and just admit to what they did. You know, the opportunity to have these resentencings and go into the courtroom and possibly come face to face with the family members of the victims in the case, to be able to finally admit and apologize, you know what I mean, without without really without it being a matter of guilt or innocence here without it being consequential you know what i mean like mm-hmm. it's just was you know yeah, that, think, it, 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 that's why that's why the juvenile ruling has such deeper implications that i think what we've been talking about so far yeah no and i, I agree with you in terms of you know the the impact of that but also i find it really difficult for individuals to quote unquote come clean um when as you pointed out it just it, it's they're harming themselves in the long run it, legally harming themselves in the long run if they right. if they do that and if they do it that can't happen it, it it can't happen within the current framework of the it legal can. system. It can. No, I'm talking about in terms it of can. the legal system, you know. Right. Um, I'm, that's what I'm saying. I'm agreeing with you. I'm agreeing yeah. with you because that's why what we need is a more, a system that's, that's, that's based more on the principles of restorative justice. Mm-hmm. You dig what I'm saying of transformative justice, of healing justice, overhanging justice, because nothing kills the soul. This is in my observation. Nothing kills the soul faster and more absolutely than a secret about a murder. And I'm telling you some, some real stuff. Nothing kills the soul more than you knowing that you have this secret. And you're learning how to live day to day with that. You're learning how to live day to day with that. Knowing that you have that on your hands. What lies do you have to begin to tell yourself? You dig what I'm saying? Or how do you make peace with that day to day? And as a year go by and as two years and three years and four years go by, what do you lose in yourself? in your own humanity. And so don't nobody want to lose that. Not less that, you know, you're a sociopath or a psychopath or something. You dig what I'm saying? But if there's an iota of humanity in you, you don't want to walk around with that. You don't want to keep that like that. But the way the system is set up is a system of winners and losers. And it's an adversarial system. It's like, it's, it's, it's just so problematic, mm-hmm. which is why this system as it is, it's just not good for not just the people behind the walls, but it's not good for the health and well-being of people and communities on the outside. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And it's just, it's just, it's just really, really deep. It's really deep. And um, I'm glad that you asked these questions. And I'm talking to you, Cam, because you mentioned that you're a mother. You know, and 
my mother, you know, I could only imagine how your sons feel about what they, you know, what they feel they're, they've taken you through and are taking you through. And I don't know if you've ever had that conversation with them. Oh, yeah, we yet. have. It's it, it, gone yeah. This uh, this isn't um you know a recent thing. We've been at the store yeah. you know seven plus years. So you know wow, it, that's, um, that's so yeah. good. So, so, so we're in um, where <laughs> it's it, it, there's no way to not have those conversations or to crack that open um with them knowing the kind of work that I do um and. Yeah with me knowing from so many people um, that, you know, are in prison, that went to prison long before they did, um, and people that I know that, you know, have gotten out, um, the trauma um, of all of this, right? So, and it's not, you know, it, it, think of it sometimes as one long, very, very long conversation um, where we pick up bits and pieces of different topics um, or as, you know, (laughs) you can flip it and look at it as many, many, many conversations. um, Many conversations. Time uh, that, that are necessary as part of that healing, because for me, healing, the healing is never done. The healing is a process. And whether we're talking about healing communities or, you know, helping, um, supporting individuals heal. Um, but even, even so I I find that, you know, um, I've been doing a lot more thinking and and reflecting and reading around, you know, this, this idea of, um, trauma and healing. Um, the healing doesn't happen individually. The healing has to happen in community. Um, yes, it does. So, I'm glad, uh, you know what, it's so deep that you said that, Kim, and that's why that Ubuntu Philadelphia that we just did on September 8th, you know, was so important. Can you, you talk know, a little bit uh, about that? Um, not to switch yeah. subjects, you know, but to... to no, it's, it's part of the same subject. I think it's relevant. It is relevant, and I mean, like, because you said it, it doesn't happen, it's not just... As, as individuals and there is no individual real individual he- healing if the community is still traumatized mm-hmm. you know and so like this was back in 2016 um when montgomery versus louisiana just came down now you know montgomery versus louisiana was the ruling that came down from the u.s supreme court january tw- 25th um 2016 that basically said that Miller versus Alabama was retroactive. And you know, Miller versus Alabama was the ruling that came down four years prior. 2012, that was the ruling that said that it's unconstitutional to sentence children to mandatory life without parole. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, for the next four years, various states were ruling different ways on that. Some states were saying, yes. The ruling is retroactive, so it it affects people who have already been serving time for these kind of sentences. And some states like Pennsylvania, where I'm at, that has the most, had the most juvenile lifers or most condemned children than any other state at 524 plus, 
right? And then any state in the country. And Philadelphia that had the most out of any county or district in the world at three over 300. Um, you know, they um, it ruled that uh, Miller versus Alabama was not retroactive. So that meant that we know what we did is wrong, but we're not going to do it to any future children who commit the ultimate trespass. But those children that who we've sentenced that way, they, we're going to keep them that way. Even though we know it's wrong, the ruling is not retroactive. And so that turned into a four-year battle, and it took for Montgomery versus Louisiana to come down and say, mm-hmm. yes, it is retroactive. And so now we started seeing, that's when we started seeing the traffic of people who were serving life sentences since they were children going out of the prisons into the streets. And so as I'm in the cell in, in, in the prison, listening to radio conversations, because this was a hot topic now, it was a new situation. I'm hearing all these debates and conversations and talk shows about juvenile life is coming home. And I was hearing how a lot of the conversation was about how do we help these people to reenter? How do we get to the state to give resources to this and so on and so forth? And But I didn't hear much conversation about how ready was the community to receive us. Mm-hmm. But and what I what I was hearing was a lot of pain. Like on in some of these shows, you would hear families that had lo- had lost loved ones. They were like, "No, they, I don't. I'm not feeling this." I, you know, they were looking at the U.S. Supreme Court rulings that I just mentioned, not as a a, a thing to celebrate. Sure, mm-hmm. people like me and my family and my legal team and friends and supporters could celebrate, right? But people who had lost uh, their, their their loved ones. To, to to murder at the hands of child offenders, they were like looking at those U.S. Supreme Court rulings as justice being taken away, re-traumatization and, and, and things like that. And so they were like, no. And so I, it, I, I, was, I started to see how divided the community was and that this conversation about Miller versus Alabama and Montgomery versus Louisiana was a conversation about winners and losers. Mm-hmm. It was a convers- it was an adversarial conversation that was characteristic of the adversarial nature of the system that we was you know we were um talking about mm-hmm. and so how can we help the, the, the how can we elevate this conversation out of this adversarial space into a space where it could evolve really evolve our society? How could we bring about some healing because there is no moving forward. there's no organizing our communities to address these macro issues like poverty right unemployment lack of health care you know what i'm saying environmental racism and environmental justice and all that if these communities our communities are nursing and self-inflicted wounds and are traumatized by wounds inflicted by its own members right and because the pain is real the losses are real you know what i mean and connected to every one of us that's coming out into the streets unfortunately whether we're innocent of it or not connected to our narrative is a dead person a dead human being somebody's loved one that's not here no more and so how do we how do we bridge this how do we have a conversation about community healing and so ubuntu philadelphia was something that i I, I thought about inspired by the truth and reconciliation commission of post-apartheid south africa Mm -hmm. and the gachacha and the gachacha courts of post-genocide rwanda because in both situations kim you know the state courts wasn't enough to deal with these situations. They, the, the, the people in the society had to dig deep into their indigenous traditions and pull out, mm-hmm. you know what I'm saying, mm-hmm. some practices and some principles. Like it was Ubuntu 
it was Ubuntu and and for the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa, which is a principle, ancient Bantu word that implies humanity and humanity to others, and I am because you are. Mm-hmm. And the Gachacha courts in post genocide Rwanda, the word Gachacha means meeting in the grass, and that's what it literally was. You know, bringing mm-hmm. the genocidaires, the Hutu Hutu genocidaires that were 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 involved in the murder of of Tutsis, bringing them before the families and the communities that they've harmed. And they had to do three things. They had to admit to what they did, apologize for what they did, and ask forgiveness for what they did, or ask how they could atone. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, I was like, wow, this, how could we, because it's like the same thing over here, where like in South Africa and in Rwanda, it wasn't just individuals, but like you said, Two entire nations needed to heal. Entire communities needed, an entire collective needed to heal. The same way in 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 this situation, in the American inner city context, entire communities needed to heal. Because throughout the late '80s and the '90s, and some a lot of the 2000s, are still we running around like Hutus and Tutsis with each other out there. You dig what I'm saying? And so, like, you know, how do we? facilitate this. And so Ubuntu Philadelphia was about creating a space where families of people who were murdered, families of people who may have committed murder or were accused of murder, people who have committed murder themselves or caused harm themselves, and also people who actually survived violence, coming together in a space for an open dialogue about family and community healing. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And it was a day-long event with all kind of activities. And one of the highlights of it, two of the highlights was us. Uh, it was a group of us, formerly incarcerated people, who, all who've caused harm, standing before the community, in front of the community, at the Cardinal Foley Campus Center, and stepping forward, and, and each of us doing the three things that the, the, genocide, the Hutu genocideers had to do in the Kachacha courts in post-genocide Rwanda. We admitted to what we did, apologized for what we did, and we asked how could we atone. And then the fourth thing, is, which is what we did at the end, uh, we made a pledge. We, we, we all made a pledge to, um, to be agents of change. You know what I mean? And I, matter of fact, I, I had wrote the pledge out just before I, um, I went to, uh, to, uh, to the event. It's called the Returning Community Members Pledge. Mm-hmm. And if you if you would mind, I, I could read it to you. Yeah, please. You know, I don't know if you got the time. You could just no, read it if you want. But I, no. Okay. Returning Community Members Pledge. And it's because of the roles we have played in the narrative of violence and victimization and loss and pain. Because of the irreparable harms, permanent loss and lifelong traumas my hands have brought to the lives in a family because of the more righteous struggles that my ignorance and selfishness kept me from because of the children in the neighborhood i was not a better example for i kempis songster hereby pledge to you to be an upstanding member of the family and community to be a positive example as well as a moral compass and motivating force in the lives of younger people, to listen attentively to them, to always look for and speak life to their potentials, to teach them how to allow their intelligence to control their impulses and anger, 
and to do all that I can to steer them away from the kinds of acts that cause harm, loss, pain to others, and that lead them to prison. To do all I can to make our elders feel safe, to resume their traditional places on the porches of their homes, watching with love and care over the children playing safely in the neighborhood. To be a source of safety and service to the children and the elderly in our communities. To help clear the way for the creativity and brilliance of women and girls to shine through without their being disrespected. To be a proponent of strong family values, the importance of education, belief in oneself, honoring the immeasurable value of human life and honoring one's place in the community and in the human family. Through this pledge, I continue my personal conviction to a life of sacrifice and service to my family, to families that have suffered the loss of loved ones to violence, to my community, to struggles that fight for everyone's right to life, and to making our communities more livable places for its members. I hereby pledge to be an agent of making violence and victimization no longer characteristics of our communities. I make this pledge to you all because you all deserve it from me. Thank right? You. Yeah. And so we that. said that pledge and then that part where I said, and I hereby, and then I, and to say my name, every individual that was there said their name and then we said it in unison to 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 everybody that was there. Mm-hmm. And this was after we did healing blankets with Roz Pichardo, you know, because who who who's a, uh, lost two of her family members to to violence and survived violence. And she and I hosted Ubuntu Philadelphia or introduced Ubuntu Philadelphia together. So we showed a model. That's what this was all about, Kim. Ubuntu Philadelphia was prefigurative intervention, kind of like what our Buckminster Fuller, the architect and inventor from the late 1800s, early 1900s said when he said, you don't change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that renders the existing model obsolete. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. so while we go out and we fight and we protest and we're involved in all of that with the coalition to abolish death by incarceration, we go out and we challenge and we do all the things that we need to do to resist. We don't just do that. We also create a model of what we want to see. Mm-hmm. If we say we don't like the, the justice system the way it is. We say it needs to be replaced. It needs to be done away with. Well, what, 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 do, what, what do else we, do we have in mind to take its place then? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and so I think a lot of times, um, you know, that's a problem with the left too, uh, Kim, you know what I mean? And so where we, 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 we know how to fight, but we don't really know how to, and I, it's not a blanket statement. It's just, you know, it's just it's something I see often where we do the blueprint, like when, for when we do win, when we are victorious, okay, well, what do we set up in this place? Mhm. Mhm. You know well, yeah. I mean, also, and that's what Ubuntu it, Philadelphia. It depends on. Uh, it depends on the organized uh, organization that you know we're we're talking about too, or organizations that yeah. we're referring to as well, because you know, um, I, I would argue that at least many, um, or at least a few, abolitionist organizations that um, that I'm thinking of. Uh, recognize that you have to build 
while you're destroying this system or these systems. There you go. There um, you go. And you, uh, go. you know, I you um as you were talking there were a couple of things that you know came to mind um as well and this is something that you know I'd like for you to um to to touch on if uh if you have some time um and, yeah. and you're inclined to um so we we say that you know incarceration is the punishment right um and that you know you serve your time and you know you should be able to get out, you know, at least under this current system. I'm not debating the ethics or the morals of the system as it is. Obviously, everybody listening to the podcast knows, you know, we're abolitionists here. Um, <laughs> but we're playing That's along right. That's for right. the moment. Yeah. Um, so incarceration is the punishment. And, you know, uh, the idea, at least, is that, you know, once someone has served their time, um, then that's it, right? However, what we have are, you know, countless examples, not just anecdotal evidence, but countless stories um, from people that have come out, but also, you know, a lot of data to back this up, that people that have caused harm um, or people that have been labeled as criminals, um, quote unquote, criminals, um, never get to re-enter society, never actually get to re-enter the community, right? That they are always sort of flirting at the margins of that community, but never really allowed to reintegrate. And part of that reintegration at least in my thinking, um, full reintegration back into a community also means that you don't always have to wear the scarlet letter. And I'd, I'd just like to hear your thoughts on that. Right. And I'm saying like, you know, and, and this is, you know, like me personally, I, I always thought that, you know, coming home, you know, I was prepared to you know to like be no matter how 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 much how 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 much I do you know I was you know I, I already made up my mind that you know I convicted myself to a, a lifetime of sacrifice and service but I, I wasn't under any illusions I knew that you know that wouldn't you know that would not be enough you know that some that I could be walking down the street and somebody could just say, yeah, him, he, that, that him right there, murderer, you know, you know, he, he murdered somebody, you know what I'm saying? I, so I'm, I was always, you know, always, you know, no, under no illusions about that, even though that has not happened per se, mm -hmm. this is what I prepared myself for. You know, and it's been a driving thing for me. You know, it's been like, okay, maybe this is my burden. You know what I'm saying? I'm not walking around with a sense of entitlement. Like, you know, like I'm entitled to walk around guilt-free. You dig what I'm saying? Because I'm not innocent. You know what I'm saying? And so I'm prepared. I, I, w I was preparing myself for a struggle, for for integration. You know what I'm saying? But it turned out to be the opposite for me. 
um, Kim, it turns out that the community has the, the, the wide open world, or what I call the wow, has been very welcoming and forgiving to me. You know, um, I'm not saying it's that way with everybody else, but at least in the city of Philadelphia, it seems as if there is this rising tide of consciousness, you know, in this city and maybe in other parts of the country. I don't know if you see it where you're at, but there's a rising tide of consciousness that's that's bearing down. It seems like it's bearing down on systems of um, so-called systems of justice, mm-hmm. you know, and systems of punishment. When I go into spaces and people say, okay, well, this is Kempis Songster, otherwise known as Ghani, and he has spent 30 years in prison and boom, 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 and, and they tell my narrative. And a lot of times people... They're very welcome, man. They may clap. They may congratulate you. Welcome, congratulate me. Welcome home, brother. As they do for a lot of us that are coming home. And it's not that, I recognize that it's not that they're celebrating the act. It's not that they're supporting what we did. You did what I'm saying. It's just that there is this impulse and this inclination in the community towards hope you know, towards a positive and happy ending. Mm-hmm. You dig what I'm saying? This crime and punishment narrative, as you just broke down, is just a hopeless narrative. You know, whether you're talking about the person that was lost their life, you know, and they're gone forever, and that's a hopeless narrative. And then the person that took a life or caused a life to be lost, is sent to prison with LWAP or death by incarceration and that forever. And that's a hopeless narrative. And both families are tied to those individuals, admired in pain and loss, you know, of, 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 of high degrees, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Forever. And that's a hopeless narrative. And so to see, to come back out into the community, you know, people are like, and especially when you come back out changed and transformed and ready to serve and ready to, 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 to give back, even though you know you, you can never bring back to the table what you took from the table. You know, it's something in people, I think, that inclines towards hope. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? That it, this, this doesn't happen, have to be all bad, that, that maybe... You know, there is hope for people after they've done wrong where they could become a part of the solution and helping to fix some of the problems that we're dealing with out here. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Because who can talk to these young people out here that's running around doing crazy things than people who were young and did crazy things like them? You know what I'm saying? And so the reintegration process hasn't been as hard for me you know, and other juvenile life as, as as it might have been, you know, that I know as it has been for others, because, you know, like I'm, I'm going around, I'm talking, I'm going into schools, you know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. at, at a frantic pace, other guys I know are working in youth uh, reentry um, programs, helping other juvenile lifers come home and get their bearings and helping them reintegrate. Cause who, who better else to help people coming home to reintegrate than people who, who went through that process and know what it's hitting for. 
<laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so the whole that whole thing is just like an interesting dynamic here that's not typical to what we've been seeing in incarceration and post-incarceration narratives mm-hmm. up to this point. This whole juvenile life of thing, it's um it's it's presenting is presenting a different look to society. And one of the things too, it's like, you know, at least in this city, every day, Kim, that we live out here doing the things that we're doing, it obliterates the myth that somehow we represent public safety concerns. You know, it obliterates the the myth that people who have caused harm can't grow and change to the point where we can make good neighbors. Just to tie it back to something that you raised earlier, because I don't want, um, what I don't want, and it's something that we've talked about on the show before, is for people to get the impression that, you know, people go to prison and they get rehabilitated, right? That it's some miraculous process that happens, you know, when they're in there by themselves or that there are programs and things like that. But you pointed out the fact that you had, you know, you had a very particular kind of political education in prison and you had mentors who guided you and, you know, kind of took you under their wing at a very early age and early, it sounded like, in your incarceration. And that was the transformative process, you know, like the, the, the turn that happened for you, which is not something that happens on a large scale and, you know, across the board for people that go to prison at all, you know, so at, I think all. at all, you know, and I, so I want, I want people to understand one, the uniqueness of your story, but also the significance and importance of a, a, a particular kind of political education, right? That That's right. That's right. On, you know, on transformation, right? And the other thing that, you know, I was thinking about as well is, um, and I don't know, I I don't know what you think about this, but, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, The expectation that we have um, for people that have caused harm, right? To return to their communities and to do the kind of work that you're doing. And I'm not saying, oh, don't do this work. That's obviously not Mm -hmm. what I'm arguing at all. But I feel Mm -hmm. like there is also a great deal of pressure put on some individuals that, you know, are coming out of prison to, to do this kind of work. Right. And that this becomes in obviously, you know, this is space that you're allowed to take up. This is space that, you know, we need you in, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that there's also a a broader and unstated expectation for not everyone, but for a lot of people coming out that they should devote themselves to this work as part of continuing their punishment outside. And I'm not saying, and that may not be coming out the way I intend it, because I'm not saying that the work that you're doing is continuing the punishment. Um, right, I know. But you get, do you get what I mean in terms of how we, how we, you know, it, 
narrow the scope for people again, right? So it's like you yeah. spent 30 years of your life in prison. You went to prison when you were 15 years old, right? And you're choosing yeah. to do this work. But there are a lot of people that were like, well, you know, if you really cared about your community, you know, and that tends to be the unspoken message. Well, you would really be engaged in, you know, helping out the kids. Right. And it's like, I got you. There are people just trying to go to work and and just trying to figure out what their life is. Who didn't have, you know, all of these things. I, I hope I didn't mess that up completely. Um, no, listen, hey. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, listen, I got you. And let me tell you something. You look, I'm feeling I'm I'm feeling you on that. And I say all the time that I am who I am. You know, I come out of prison in a way, I think, in a way that I could make my mother proud. Right. And that is not because of prison. That's in spite of prison. Mm-hmm. You understand? Mm-hmm. Because I didn't, 30 years is a long time. And we've been talking for only about an hour. Yeah. You dig what I'm saying? It's no way you can even know the horror stories. Mm-hmm. You know, I got to spend time telling you. Absolutely. You know, I, didn't even, I didn't even get into telling you about the, the the years that I spent in solitary confinement, not days, weeks, or months, years. Yeah. Right? In yeah. control units. I ain't tell you about all that. You dig what yeah. I'm saying? I ain't tell you about how I got caught up as a kid in the biggest riot in the in the state's history. You know what I'm saying? And 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 made it out of that situation alive only to be charged up. I mean, cr- criminal charges for, for for being involved in the riot. Mm. In a prison that I wasn't even supposed to be in anyway. Mm. You dig what I'm saying? And having to fight that situation. And so, and, you know, and just dealing with navigating predatory situations as a young kid. Mm -hmm. You know, and coming out with my manhood intact. You know, and so like, you know, I am who I am because of that particular kind of political education you talked about. And really and i got to give credit to my mother you know again my mother when she first came to see me she brought me those three books and it was when i turned the pages and started reading about malcolm and i asked my mother you know i asked my mother i said my late this was many many years later decade couple decades later when i finally asked her mom why you why you brought gave me those books and you know she told me you know she knew that where i was going into she would not be able to protect me. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? She would not be able to protect me, even though, and I'm going to tell you something, I ran away from home. I did. I just, I just disreached. My mother came home one day and I was gone. And she didn't know if I was alive or dead for a very long time. And when, and I was in Philly, they ran away from Brooklyn, New York to Philly. And when I got arrested four months later, I was only on, on my adventure for four months. Joined a gang, and four months later, show you how smart I was. I couldn't even make it four months, you know, and um, I ended up in prison. And guess who I called the minute I was arrested? Your mama. My mother. Of course, my mother. So I knew, even though I disrespected my mother that way, 
and hurt her like that that made her worry. And again, I wasn't running away from my mother. She wasn't, I, my mother loved me. Mm-hmm. You know, she's the best mom in the world. It's just, I was, I was running to something and I, yeah. I was running. I told you what, you know, I, I already broke it down. The kind of stuff was in my head that I was running from and what I was running to. And that was something that a lot of children, Kim, is caught in a tug of war between their mothers, what their mothers, the good stuff their mothers is trying to put in them, and the, the streets pulling them, music, movies, false notions, the, the toxic masculinity piece. That's an unfair battle for a single mother. That's an unfair battle. You know, and so I called her, the only person I thought to call because I knew, somehow I knew with my selfish behind, inconsiderate that my mother was going to come. And sure enough, she came down from Brooklyn, New York on a train to Philly and brought me those books. And when I asked, I asked her about that years later, she said, you were going somewhere where I couldn't protect you. And I knew that Malcolm and Mandela were in prison. And I knew that they turned out pretty well. And I just figured if anything, I, that's all I could do. Mm-hmm. Couldn't reach you. I can't fight off what you're going to be having to deal with in there. But maybe if I could give you something, then you can turn out like them. And that would be your protection. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I'm telling you, she was right. And, with the, and the difference between Malcolm and Mandela, they put Malcolm in prison and he became conscious. They put Mandela in prison because he was conscious. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, but in both instances, they navigated the prison experiences and I identified more with Malcolm because he came from that kind of social pariah community. You dig what I'm saying? Yeah, <laughs> Predatory. You know, you know, and, and I'm going to tell you something, Malcolm, the Malcolm X paradigm is something that a lot of incarcerated people you know, Malcolm is a shining lodestar to us. He is the example of how you pull yourself back from the ruins. How do we gain your moral rectitude? Malcolm is the model, him and George Jackson. Mm-hmm. George George Jackson being, you know, locked up for a gas station holdup. You know, yeah. he was a regular social, and he got politicized in prison. Those two, the greatest intellectuals, and freedom fighters and revolutionary minds and thinkers and visionaries that was ever produced inside these camps. And those were our like examples. And Mm -hmm. my mother opened me up to Malcolm and the other political prisoners that I met opened me up to George, Mm -hmm. you know? And so everybody don't get that because while I was doing that, I I know other juvenile lifers, other child uh, condemned children that, you know, they just played a lot of basketball, played, you know, stayed at the poker tables and ended up getting surrounded by some unsavory uh, company. And um, they get up, got absorbed into the prison culture. Mm-hmm. And some of them, some, some, some gruesome things happened to them. And some of them started do, doing gruesome things to other people, mm-hmm. you know, so, 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 and, and so again, and, 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 and the system is set up that way. And the mm-hmm. programs that helped me wasn't the programs that the prison instituted. It was the programs that other prisoners designed. Exactly. You know, well, the programs that we made yeah. yeah, and programs I mean, that I made, for, you know what I mean? Yeah. And this is why the, you know, individual prisoners that are, um, you know, engaged in these activities are targeted yeah. and, sent to solitary confinement because they don't want them to 
you know, they don't want them to hold class um, and yes. and to educate other uh, other prisoners, which is you know how many oh, suicides of oh. you know how many suicides that happened just on the cell block that cell, cell block that I was on, you know all the all the, the deaths that I've seen in prison, you know people getting rolled by my cell on stretches and I never saw them again after that. People that were my friends, you dig what I'm saying? Like mm -hmm. you know, I, so so me being out here, I know I. I no credit to the prison system. I believe that yeah. these prisons, the prison industrial complex should be bulldozed. Yeah. You know, if we make it out, if we make it out of there with our integrity and our manhood intact, you know what I'm saying? With some sense of, you know, some like moral, you know, a moral compass, you know, a, a sense of, of service, you know what I mean? Like to the community, that's not something that the prison gave us. Exactly. You know, if any, if anything, the prison tried to destroy that or keep you. The exactly. prison is listen. The prison is banning books. They're banning um, George Jackson books. They're banning like like right now in Pennsylvania. All the prisons just came off. They're still they're just transitioning off a three week or once month uh, one month lockdown. Yeah. And they're instituting yeah. the most repressive policies ever. And one of those policies are you're not allowed to receive any more books from the outside. Not yeah. from any book programs or any vendors, not even Amazon.com, none of mm -hmm. that stuff. And 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 the ebooks that they say the only place you can get the books from is ebooks. They don't even have the autobiography of Malcolm X as part of, of that selection. Well, it's I mean, you know they're I mean? they're heavily censoring, you know, all of yeah. the material and creating, you know, um, oh God, it's I'm I'm glad you mentioned so, that because it was on my yeah. mind. But, um, you know, that's going to be a whole other conversation. I'm wondering if um, and we didn't and we didn't even start talking about uh, um, the healing that needs to take place in the city of Philadelphia because of the move bombing. And I, the fact that, you for bringing and that I know you wanted to talk about that. 